This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. On this episode of Reaganism, Reagan Institute Policy Director Rachel Hoff sits down with the Honorable Alicia Kearns, who serves as a member of Parliament for Rutland and Melton, and as a chair of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee of the UK House of Commons. They discussed MP Kearns' early political influences, including President Reagan, her work at the Ministry of Defense, and her role as the first woman to chair the Foreign Affairs Select Committee, and its subsequent policy goals. Well, hello and welcome to Reaganism. I am your guest host, Rachel Hoff, Policy Director here at the Ronald Reagan Institute. And I'm so pleased to welcome you to a very special international edition of Reaganism with an honored guest from across the pond in the United Kingdom, Alicia Kearns, MP. Welcome to Reaganism. Thank you so much for having me. It's a joy to uh, join you from across the pond. Well, we're so glad to have you. You are a member of the British Parliament from the Conservative Party, and you serve as chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee in Parliament. Prior to your service in Parliament, you worked as a civil servant in the UK's Foreign Office, Ministry of Defense, and Ministry of Justice. We'll get into more about your expertise and your leadership on national security issues a little bit later in the conversation. But to start, in my research for today's podcast, I learned that you and the namesake of this podcast, President Ronald Reagan, share a very important part of your biography, which is that you were both converts to conservatism, as it were. You had a political journey from the political left to the political right. Tell us a bit to start about your upbringing, your political upbringing, and kind of your coming of age and how you became a conservative. Sure. So yeah, I was born up, uh, raised in a very left-wing household, uh, very, very left-wing household, some might say. Uh, my parents were very much uh, socialists. Uh, they lived in a squat at one point and they met in East Germany. Uh, so I think that gives you a few clues as to their political orientation. Um, but they raised me with the belief that you should always respect people for having different viewpoints politically. And the most important thing was to never hate. And because of my father's upbringing in Ireland, he felt particularly strongly about the need to remove hatred um, from politics. Um, I was working in the civil service. I thought the word Tory, which is obviously the word we use for conservatives in the UK, was a term of offence. I'd never heard anyone call themselves a Tory. And then I found myself working in the civil service for conservative ministers. And first of all, I found myself to have a great deal of respect for them. They were so passionate and committed about making a difference. But actually, there was a real turning point for me, which was a vote on prisoner voting. Uh, So there was a requirement for the British government to give prisoners the vote while they are incarcerated. And Labour was saying that they fully supported this. But I knew that I didn't instinctively within, you know, my belief is that once you've been rehabilitated, once you've served your time, of course, you should have a right to contribute to a community. But when you have done something so heinous that you had to be removed from our society, you have had to be incarcerated because you cannot control yourselves and you are a threat to our communities and you deserve to be punished, you do not have the right to contribute to our society. You lose that democratic right because it is a privilege and a right to be able to vote. Um, And so that for me was a real turning point, realising that the party I had been born into and that I assumed my politics were might not represent my views. And from there, really, you know, it took on headwinds. I looked at issue after issue after issue and realized that actually a lot of us across politics want to achieve the same outcomes, but it's about how we want to achieve it and how we think those things can be done. And I realized that I was inherently a conservative. 
Well, you mentioned your work in the civil service uh, during your time there. You worked extensively on national security issues, counterterrorism in particular. Uh, tell us a bit about those roles, how you found yourself doing that work, and what inspired your transition from civil service work into politics when you ran for parliament. Sure. So I'd always worked in crisis uh, roles in some way or form, uh, whether it was dealing with a live murder investigation in a hospital, um, whether it be uh, all sorts of different instances going on. And I decided I wanted to work in government because I was tired of working for the machine, but not being part of it. Uh, so I went into the Ministry of Justice where my job was about supporting victims and survivors of crime to get access to care. And then a role came up at the Ministry of Defence working on our Scottish referendum. So as many of your listeners will know, we held a referendum about whether or not Scotland should be independent of the UK. I felt very passionately from a defence and security perspective, um, but also just in terms of what was right for our country, that Scotland shouldn't go independent. And so I took on this role leading our uh, Ministry of Defence's contribution to Scottish referendum campaign. But as part of that, I was also working on military equipment. I was also working on crises in theatre. So, for example, if a helicopter was down in Afghanistan uh, or there were other incidences to deal with. And then one day I got a phone call from the Foreign Office saying, look, there's a role being advertised working on Syria. Um, we think you'd be a really good fit. Please come and apply. And I got that job. Uh, but I think on day one of the job, uh, I was called into an office and said, congrats on the job, but actually that's not what you're going to be doing. You've got 10 days to write the strategy on how we're going to defeat the terrorist group Daesh. And that was my introduction to counterterrorism. And from then on, my role was Syria, Iraq, uh, countering Daesh. And then it evolved as Russia took a role in Syria into also doing a lot of counter-hostile state work. Um, and that's really where I found my forte was very much working in the counter-hostile state, counter-terrorist kind of space. Well, you certainly brought that expertise and and the the balance of that experience to your role in Parliament. You you had a very sort of quick rise to power just three years after arising arriving in Parliament. You you depends what you consider power, but yeah, that's an excellent point. Um, uh, but it was just three years uh, after you arrived in Parliament that you were elected to to chair the Foreign Affairs Select Committee. Um, you know, our Reaganism audience is mostly a, an American audience, and so that that kind of trajectory and and quick pace to a leadership position uh, would be a little bit rare in in our U.S. system. Yeah. Um, you also happen to have three leaders of the Conservative Party during during those first three years that you were in Parliament, which is yeah. a rarity even in the British system, as I understand. Uh, quickly explain a bit about kind of your early years in in parliament uh just over the last three four years and kind of your your rise to that leadership post with the committee in the context of what was happening broader more broadly in british politics and then and then we'll get in a bit uh later to your work on the committee itself sure so i so i was elected in 2019 for the first time um and it was really interesting because we've had a really tough three years as has everyone around the world so when i was elected it was very much on a wave around brexit and that was the entire focus of the election and that was the focus of our first few months in parliament um but obviously as you will know from the january of 2020 we were hearing reports of uh this virus uh, that has coming from wuhan and i remember going to the first ever a statement in the British Parliament on the Wuhan virus, as it was called then. I think it was January or February, and I think only about 15 MPs went in total to the statement. And I went because I knew that in the past China had hidden uh, evidence of previous conditions, um, so particularly to do with uh, pigs and different diseases they'd had or they'd covered it up. And it was really interesting seeing how few people came. 
Uh, so then obviously we went into the pandemic where we as British parliamentarians, we have a very different job from American congressmen. Uh, our job is to support our constituents. So I have 105,000 constituents, so obviously fewer than many congressmen. But my job is to essentially also work as a social worker. So if someone's being domestically abused, they would contact me and say, please, can you help me get it into a new house by tomorrow? Uh, if someone's passport hasn't come back from the government, if someone's child needs a special educational needs assessment they can't get, if one of our local hospitals has a problem and needs help or a business these alone. These are all things that British parliamentarians do. So the pandemic was a really tough time uh, where we stepped in a lot to help people in ways we never thought we would. So we had the furlough program in the UK where we essentially covered people's wages uh, for the pandemic, um, which many criticised us for, but it was the right thing to do because we know as Conservatives that when we protect jobs, we keep roofs over people's houses, um, over people's families, we allow them to make a contribution to our economy and we allow them to continue to provide that support to their families in that protection. Um, but we had the pandemic. Then we had Afghanistan. Uh, we had um, everything. In terms of international policy, we've had Afghanistan, we've had Ukraine, uh, we've had the kind of who belt across uh, the Africa that's been going on. There have been so many major incidents to taking place around the world and obviously the rise of China. Um, and what was really interesting to me was having come into politics, how many people felt that foreign policy was a distraction, that essentially foreign policy was only for those of us who had what are considered to be safer conservative seats? And it's something I've really tried to fight against since I came into politics. So that when I when I was signing for election, I was talking about China. I was talking about my concerns about the Uyghur. I was talking about what was going on in the Western Balkans. I was talking about the fact that we need parliamentarians who have a global perspective and recognize the risks. Because in my view, you cannot have economic security unless you have national security. And the foremost job of every government is to keep its people safe. So I've tried to really be a voice uh, for foreign policy, and I was very fortunate to be elected onto the Foreign Affairs Committee as soon as I was elected. Um, and then the chairmanship came up because Tom Tugendhat, who I know you've had as a previous guest on this podcast, uh, he was made Minister for Security in September, and then the election opened. And I wasn't going to apply. Uh, I hadn't really thought that that would be the right thing for me. Um, and then actually I decided to do it. And it was controversial that I was standing because this is a role normally the preserve of somebody who'd been in part for a very long time. Uh, the three gentlemen who ran against me had all been members of parliament for over 30 years. One of them had been the leader of the Conservative Party. One of them had been the defence secretary. Uh, another had led a lot of the work with the Westminster Foundation for Democracy. Um, but I felt that I brought a unique perspective and also my ability to hold the Foreign Office of our State Department to account, having worked there for a number of years, meant that I could really make a difference on foreign policy. Um, and then I was very fortunate when I was elected, uh, I was, yes, the youngest ever chair, the first woman, um, but I've been able to really make a difference and my committee have been really fantastic in terms of coming with me on the kind of areas that I've wanted us to look at. Mm -hmm. When you reflect back, you're coming up on one year of your, your chairmanship. When you reflect back on that year uh, in terms of your biggest accomplishments so far and looking ahead where your top priorities are, what are the issues that are that are kind of at the core of, of the work that, that you're doing with the committee? So I'd like to think that we've really been able to put some fire under the feet of our ministers. Uh, so we they know uh, that we are really going to hold them to account when it comes to issues. Uh, they know that we are going to fight until we get the right answer. 
Um, I think some of the things that we've been particularly good at is changing the approach to consular. Um, we've recently just completed an inquiry around state hostage taking. And the reason we did that was that I felt very strongly that too many countries have adopted hostage taking, arbitrary detention of individuals as an arm of their foreign policy. And so I wanted us to expose that. Obviously, there's people like Jimmy Lai, uh, Vladimir Karamurza, uh, but also attempted use of hostages. Obviously, the Iranian state uses them repeatedly. Uh, there are people every day being held because of their passports um, as leverage. So we've been able to really progress that discussion. Uh, we've also completed reports on the Wagner network, um, which I feel very strongly about because I felt for too long governments around the world have failed to really look at the kind of phenomena of private military companies. And we know that there are Emirati and Turkish and other private military companies operating as well, not just the Wagner network. The Wagner network really came to public awareness because of the renewed illegal invasion of Ukraine. But you and I know it's been operating in Africa since 2014. Uh, it's essentially, its mission is, we will give you guns if you give us gold and access to your critical minerals. Um, so that was a really interesting inquiry that I think will fundamentally change how Britain responds and deals with private military groups. But we've also, of course, looked at the Indo-Pacific tilt because that is something the British government said that they were going to pursue, uh, an inquiry on critical minerals and one on Central Asia. And we've just launched one on counterterrorism because... That is, of course, a real interest of mine, and I worry that it's falling off the attention slightly. Well, certainly a, a global set of priorities there for for a country as as the, which as the United States has kind of a global global set of interests that that demand a global set of responsibilities. Um, I want to pick up on on one thread from your previous answer. Answer you mentioned a couple of of political prisoners. Um, mm -hmm. By name there, Jimmy Lai and Vladimir Karamurza. Here at the Ronald Reagan Institute, we have a Center for Freedom and Democracy that that speaks to President Reagan's legacy on those issues, which as with the work you've been doing uh, at the committee, um, always saw standing up for uh, the plight of political dissidents and freedom fighters around the world as core to um, to the the interest of not only the American people, but but for for uh, the free world. Um, We've Vladimir Karamurza in Russia is a, a friend of the Reagan Institute. He, he and his wife have both uh, been on the podcast in the last couple of years, um, as as you know. But but for the benefit of our listeners, uh, Vladimir earlier this year was sentenced to 25 years in a Russian prison yeah. uh, on charges of treason, essentially for speaking the truth about Vladimir Putin's war in Ukraine. Vladimir is a dual national, uh, a UK dual national. Uh, he holds a British passport. What more could the UK government do to secure Vladimir's freedom um, and receive the medical care in particular that, that he needs? Well, the first thing we could do is sanction the 29 officials responsible for Karamurza being held and imprisoned. Um, but ultimately, I think there is, unfortunately, in this case, less uh, that the British government can do in that Vladimir is being held because he is a threat to Putin. He is a threat to Putin because he speaks the truth. He does so bravely. His wife, Evgenia, is an utter hero. Uh, the threat he poses is so deep to Putin because he is willing to talk about right and wrong. He is willing to expose Kremlin kleptocracy. And the fact that he went back to Russia knowing full well that he was likely to be incarcerated, particularly with his health conditions, 
Um, it's so incredibly brave. But look, even under Russian law, he shouldn't be in prison. Prison they, Russian law recognizes that the condition he has as a result of two failed poisonings by Putin against him should mean that he shouldn't be in prison. This man, his very existence is a threat to Putin in every single way, much like Navalny. Um, but what we should be doing is working with other countries, and I know that there are other countries who are considering giving nationality uh, to Mr. Karamurza. We should be working with our multilateral partners to do every single thing we can to make sure that we can uphold his health. Do I think that Putin is likely to ever release this hero of a man? No, because a threat of someone who speaks truth to power is so great. However, we have to do everything we can to keep him healthy so that his voice can keep being heard. And all of us who watched that amazing video of him speaking from the courtroom and the continued bravery that he shows, we need to use our voices for him. When I stood up, uh, we do something called a maiden speech in the British Parliament. So the first speech you give, you set out your kind of pitch of what you hope to achieve in government. And my pitch was that I want to be a voice for those who others seek to silence. Vladimir is exactly that kind of person. And we have to keep the heat on the Russian government to make sure that they cannot allow him to get hurt or to get too sick. Um, but I really hope that we can all continue to do what we can. And we do need the international community to speak up for him. So it's not just British voices. Mm -hmm. On the other side of the world in Hong Kong, there's another democracy mm -hmm. activist in sitting in jail, Jimmy Lai in yeah. Hong Kong. The Chinese Communist Party has targeted Jimmy Lai under its national security law. Uh, his trial's coming up in mid-September. Jimmy Lai is also a British citizen. Mm -hmm. What do you make of the CCP's crackdown on freedom in the former British colony of, of Hong Kong in recent years? And, and, um, and you know, what more there too with, with his British citizenship could, could the UK government do um, to secure his freedom? So I think with Jimmy Lai, it shows that the Chinese Communist Party runs scared of truth um, and the power of one person's voice, that this is a political witch trial. They are trying to hurt Jimmy to try and silence anyone who dares speak up about the appalling crackdown on basic freedoms that is taking place uh, across Hong Kong. And look, the Hong Kong national security law is at the heart of a lot of this. It is the tool that is being used to beat uh, the freedoms out of the people of Hong Kong and to systematically erode uh, democracy uh, that did exist. Um, and look, Sebastian Lai, Jimmy's son, has really spoken out uh, and called for people to really focus on him. In our hostages report, I made sure that we spoke about, about both Vladimir and Jimmy. And I think, look, we really need to make sure we are speaking about Jimmy all the time. Um, there was recently footage out showing him alive and well. But I worry again, this is someone that we have to talk about him time and time again, because if we don't use our voices for him, then that gives the Chinese Communist Party an excuse to erase his voice and to eradicate him potentially. Um, so I do have really uh, strong concerns, and I'm not sure we've done quite enough to speak out on behalf of Jimmy, um, because what he is the strongest symbol of everything that is going wrong in Hong Kong. We're going to be hosting Sebastian, Jimmy's son, here at the Reagan Institute in September right. uh, for an event, and and we'll be certainly watching uh, his father's trial as with our as with our listeners, I know, um, and hoping for the best. I know there's there's much to be done in the meantime. Um, China and the Chinese Communist Party have been a major focus of yours. You you helped found the China Research Group, a, a group of conservative members of parliament. 
um, looking at how Britain should respond to the the rise of China. You focused on issues, you know, a range of of issues with regard to the challenge Chinese the Chinese pose from industrial policy to technology, technological development, um, to their broader foreign policy and human rights issues. Um, tell us a little bit about why you founded that group, why you thought it needed to be created and, and, and what you hope it accomplishes. So I think if we look back over the last two decades, many of your listeners will know that we went through what we call the golden era in the UK of relationships with China. And essentially, that was the belief that if we opened up our systems to China, if we tried to bring them into our market economy, our market democracies, uh, into our uh, political systems, that they would embrace that and they would move toward more towards us and more away from this autocratic way of being. Look, in diplomacy, you have to have hope or else you will achieve nothing. So I don't criticize the fact that we tried to bring China into the fold and we, that we exposed them to our values and our systems. But what we did that was wrong was that we assumed that, of course, they would want to adopt our way of life and our approach to things, whereas we should have followed a two-track process. One, we hope that they do that, and the other, we plan for if they fail. And if that failed, we should be making our system more resilient to China whereas that is what we failed to do. So the result over the next two decades, where we should be leaning into technological advantages and making sure that we're doing everything we can to have the scientific advantage and everything we need to protect ourselves, we are instead now having to go back and build resilience into the system, strip out where we are overly reliant on China, Chinese Communist Party specifically, and I would make clear my entire approach on China is about the Chinese Communist Party, so my best friends are Chinese. But the problem here is that we are not resilient to the worst excesses of a Chinese Communist Party who are beyond wolf warriors. They are actively trying to undermine our stability, our systems, our processes, and make us dependent on them. Because if we are dependent on the Chinese Communist Party at home, that essentially castrates us on the world stage and makes us unable to deter the worst excesses of their behaviors and makes us weak. So we have to realize that this is a strategic battle uh, the Chinese Communist Party sees this in a 50-year history, and we so far have let ourselves down. So my priority has been all about reforming uh, British laws around procurement, uh, changing how we look at national security issues, changing how we look at human rights issues, uh, making sure that we are not letting the Chinese Communist Party take control of critical national infrastructure on our shores. And I'm really pleased because we have seen a real step change across all political parties, um, but particularly within the government, recognizing how severe the threat is. In addition to everything China's doing on a global stage beyond their borders to undermine the free and open international system to, um, uh, you know, both both in terms of the political system and the economic system, what, um, you know, we've, we've seen their, the genocide that they've been perpetrating against the Uyghur people in Xinjiang um, yeah. over the last many years. I know you've called it a genocide. Many in the, in the U.S. government, including uh, this, the State Department has declared um, the uh, actions against the Uyghurs as a genocide. What more could the U.S. and the U.K. be doing together to end this genocide and hold the Chinese Communist Party accountable? Well, and I think for anyone who is questioning whether or not this meets uh, genocide, forced imprisonment, disappearances, 
uh, rape, sterilization of women, torture of Chimney and Uyghurs, the kidnapping of children, putting it into schools where they have to stop using their language, their names, and adopt and speak about the Chinese Communist Party and sing Chinese songs when Hun men go once a month to rape women so that they can essentially remove uh, the Uyghur from their own ethnic DNA backgrounds. This is what they are doing. Um, look, the American government and the American Congress have actually done some really good things. Uh, you know, there's the Forced Labor Uyghur Act. Uh, there's a, a number of other actions they've taken to try and, you know, Forced Labor Prevention Act, uh, things to do with supply chains. This is really good leadership, but actually we have to move together as multilaterals because otherwise, for example, if you look at solar panels, you end up with the UK becoming a dumping ground for solar panels that have been produced with slave labour um, because of the fact that the US has taken action. Um, so the UK needs to, one, recognise it as a genocide. Now, of course, they want to see a competent court make that assessment first, in which case we should be working to make sure the competent court makes that determination for us. Um, then what we have to do is make sure that we keep slave labour on the on the radar, because at the moment there is too much reliance on the private sector simply signing a piece of paper where they say yes we've done everything we can to remove slave labour from our system, rather than having doing what the US have done, where they've essentially shifted uh, the duty for companies to prove that there isn't slave labour within their systems. Um, so there is a lot more that can be done. I will continue to be a voice on this issue that we all say never again, and yet. What do we see on our doorsteps? We see materials and goods that we are benefiting from that have been made through genocide. Um, so this is an issue where we have to come together internationally. And ultimately, a lot of that comes from reforming multilaterals. It is absolutely heinous that we have a country committing genocide, occupying so many seats in UN bodies whose job is to speak up for minorities. We need to take a more strong position in multilaterals and fight for roles where we know those, if those roles are taken by hostile states, they will be able to silence and prevent investigations that need to be taking place and that would also shine a light on these sorts of atrocities. So I am heartbroken that too often the international system is not remembering the Uyghur people. We need to do more on that. You mentioned some some areas of daylight between the way that the US and the UK governments have, have approached the the China challenge, where do, do you think that there's more kind of, do you think that there's more um, dissimilarities or or differences or similarities between how the US and the UK are, are looking at the China threat? Obviously, um, you mentioned sort of cross-party collaboration on China and the UK. That's something we've seen here in Washington as well, broad bipartisan agreement on the threat that China poses, um, you know, with, with some, you know, differences at the margins, both the Trump and Biden administrations put China at the center of their national security, national defense strategies yeah. in the US. Congress. We've seen our own select committee on the CCP under Chairman Mike Gallagher uh, created in this uh, in this session. In terms of U.S. and U.K., though, more differences or more similarities in how we view the threat posed by the Chinese Communist Party? So I think from my conversations with, you know, uh, senior politicians and leaders of government departments in the U.S., we are far more aligned than we are divided on this. It's more about how we approach things. Um, and look, I am very much in the de-risking camp. I am not in the completely cutting off the Chinese Communist Party camp, not least because so that is, is just the question. I've yeah. So this is the question of if we can kind of separate our economies from the economies of China in a total exactly coupling, or if we need to do that in specific areas and of higher risk, right? Exactly. So essentially, 
the, at what point do we say that the economic benefits are not worth the national security costs mm-hmm. um, and also the human rights costs? And so, look, I'm, I'm a pragmatist. My job is to keep our country safe. Um, and the reality is that I do not believe that we can completely decouple from China. Um, I think the Chinese Communist Party has been very sensible in the ways in which they've turned themselves into the world's factory. Um, and look, there is no politician in the world who will be thanked by their constituents if they suddenly say to my constituents, you can't get your Christmas presents from China anymore, or your kids' Halloween costumes from China anymore. Uh, That is not going to end well. But also it's not necessary. We are not in a new Cold War. We need to make sure we do not end up in a situation of being in a new Cold War. But do we need to decouple where it is strategic, uh, de-risk where it, and also decouple in some sectors where it is of strategic importance to us? Yes, it is. Defense is not an escalation. And this is my main pitch to world leaders. The Chinese government recognizes this. Time after time after time, they pass legislation which protects their own. It is not about being aggressive to others. It is about recognizing what they themselves need to do to protect themselves. Now, that is quite separate to their very hostile, malign, and aggressive forward-leaning stances on, on other actions. We in the West apologize and stop ourselves every time we even get close to recognizing that defense is important. We are not escalating when we put defenses into our systems, when we say that we will not allow the Chinese to build our nuclear technologies, when we say we will not allow the Chinese to spy on our streets on every single citizen or be worn as police cameras um, going into the homes of British citizens. We need a conversation about data exfiltration, about the data that we give to organizations and businesses and companies, because ultimately that is our greatest weakness and that is how we will make ourselves most vulnerable. But I'm very clear, people call me a China hawk. I'm not a hawk because hawks are trained to kill. I'm here to protect my nest. Defense is not an escalation. We must be absolutely unapologetic in pursuing the protection of our own country. And that is what we must do more of and not allow the Chinese government to try and shame us from doing so. There's a lot of talk about the special relationship between Mm -hmm. the US and the UK. Um, Historically, you know, one of certainly the 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 deepest alliance of of each of our our modern nations where do you see the state of that alliance are there you know kind of at a practical level are you working with your counterparts in the US Congress on a regular basis where are the areas where we have really solid collaboration and maybe areas where we can strengthen that collaboration so I think having been a civil servant, my understanding of the special relationship is very different to the average person. Look, the special relationship is not something that is dependent on the individual political relationships between world leaders. Can it be so much more when you have that sort of relationship? Just as Reagan showed, yes, you can make it even more powerful and even more effective. But actually, because of the history of incredibly close relationships between our leaders, there is now a structural heartbeat, which is the special relationship. To rip that asunder would be so difficult and would take decades, it'd probably take about a decade to do, because our civil servants, our militaries, the ways we operate are now so inherently interlinked with one another. That is what is so special about the relationship. So even when some presidents uh, and some prime ministers test that relationship, um, actually the system itself remains uh, completely uh, functional. But it is important because when the UK and US speak together, the world listens. And the impact and ability of us to affect change, protect lives, to prevent atrocities is significant. We bring very different things to the table. 
but it is very complementary. And I saw that in the Global Coalition Against Daesh when we were running that. Um, but yes, I'm very keen to work with my counterparts. And Senator Menendez and I have just signed a joint letter around the Balkans and the need for a significant change to the way in which the UK, the US and the UK, uh, sorry, and the EU are currently approaching the Balkans. Um, I'm a big believer in the importance of countries coming together. In February, a group of 15 chairs of foreign affairs committees went together to Ukraine. It was the first time uh, since a renewed illegal invasion that there wasn't a single airstrike on Kyiv. Uh, we can be powerful when we work together as parliamentarians because we speak with the power of those who put us in that position, which is our voters. We've talked about a lot of foreign policy challenges during our conversation today, from counterterrorism to uh, the the China threat to um, Russia and, and Vladimir Putin's war in Ukraine and human rights abuses. You mentioned the Western Balkans. That is not front and center in the minds of and the conversation, the foreign policy conversations uh, uh, here in the U.S. I know it's been a, a priority of yours, the focus on the Western Balkans and your all party par parliamentary group uh, for Bosnia. Could you give our listeners an overview of what the state of play in the region is um, and what the purpose of of uh, of your group and the, the actions that you've been taking? So we all, uh, even though I was a child, I remember the wars of the 1990s uh, in the Balkans and how brutal they were. And too often those wars are forgotten. And actually it's our communities in the Balkans who watch what is happening in Ukraine at the moment. And they remember being the children who heard the bombings. They remember being the children who saw ethnic cleansing taking place in Europe. Um, and again, we said never again. And yet here we are. The Balkans is an incredibly beautiful and powerful, spiritual, fascinating place full of amazing food and people. Um, but the problem is that there is a real spread of populism. Uh, there is a lack of belief in multi-ethnic leadership. Uh, people still vote along ethnic lines and believe that only someone of their own ethnicity and religious background can adequately represent them too often. There is an enormous problem of brain drain where the young people are leaving. Uh, there is an enormous amount of trauma. And ultimately, there are some parties who refuse to accept that the existence of neighboring countries. And that is the biggest problem. That is obviously Kosovo. Um, and there are also still people who believe in greater Serbia, who believe that parts of Bosnia and parts of Kosovo should return to being part of the Serbian state. Um, the bigger problem behind that is that Russia has found those willing partners in the Balkans. And Russia is helping to sow instability um, in the pursuit of those ethnic interests. Uh, it is in Russia's interest to have potentially a second uh, front in Europe. And this is a significant problem for us all because we cannot afford to see conflict again on our streets. Uh, and we are, I'm deeply worried that we are likely to see that. Uh, since my election, I have called for the UK government to create a special envoy uh, to Western Balkans, which it has done. I called for them to create a sanctions regime in the Western Balkans, which they have done. Uh, I called for them to significantly increase tension on uh, work in the region, which they have done. Um, but uh, there is still more to be done. So, for example, the UK should rejoin U4, which is not a European force. Both Turkey and Chile are members of it. And I want to see K4, which is the NATO organization working in Kosovo, have its mandate expanded. Uh, peacekeeping is really important in the Balkans. And this really is an area, you know, a few months ago, we saw 
Serbian troops cross into Kosovo and illegally kidnap three Kosovo police officers. There are small acts of significant antagonism taking place on an almost monthly basis. So I'm really concerned about the situation. And that is why Senator Menendez, um, myself, and nine other chairs of foreign affairs committees, uh, along with over now 60 parliamentarians across Europe, wrote a letter uh, to Blinken, uh, to Joseph Burrell, and to James Cleverly, calling on them to recognise that we are in the era of deterrence diplomacy. We have to recognise that a Belgrade-focused approach to the Balkans just does not work, and it is our duty to make sure that we deter those with the worst possible aspirations within the Balkans to make sure that peace is protected. Well, in the closing minutes of our conversation today, I'll, I'll ask you what we ask of all of our guests on the Reaganism podcast, which is to share with our listeners your favorite book on President Reagan, your favorite speech by President Reagan, yeah. favorite quote from President Reagan. You can do one, two, or all three. Well, as you know, he gave some of his best speeches when he was in the UK, but I feel like it would be a little bit trite for me to just talk about his addresses to British parliaments and our guild hall. Um, so there are a number of his quotes that I feel are really powerful, uh, whether it be about Gorbachev bringing down certain walls, um, or whether it be about you know peace uh, is not the absence of conflict. But the one I, I settled on today, and I'm going to read it because I don't want to get it wrong, because I'm sure you would get a lot of comments if I did, uh, but is that freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. We didn't pass it to our children in the bloodstream. It must be fought for, protected, and handed on for them to do the same. And I think that really matters for conservatives everywhere. We what we do what we do to make future generations safer. And we recognize that freedom has to be fought for day after day after day, and that we have to protect that which we love and conserve that which is great. A powerful quote, and certainly we can see how that quote inspires much of your work in Parliament. Thank you so much for joining us on the Reaganism podcast. Thank you for having me. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Reaganism. New episodes premiere weekly every Monday on YouTube and all podcast streaming platforms. If you like this episode, be sure to let us know and share with a friend. Reaganism.